It's go time. Welcome everyone to Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon here along with Pat Mooney. And tonight we've got a lot to talk about as the season winds down in 2022. Big news out of Winnipeg. Zach Kolaris extends for three years. That's huge news for Winnipeg to have a quarterback of Zach Kolaris's caliber and to sign him for three more years. Uh, it's expensive. But right now, he is unquestionably the best quarterback in the CFL. And that's fantastic news for Winnipeg Blue Bomber fans and the CFL as a whole. The deal, according to Justin Dunk of Three Down Nation, is 600000 per season with 250000 of that guaranteed in the final year of the deal in 2025. 250000 guaranteed. Not bad. That's actually really good for Zach Caleros and hopefully it turns out to be good for the Bombers as well. We know that with the new contracts, players are guaranteed some money. $250,000 guarantees big money for him. However, if he's able to play either in a backup, if, if there's some situation where he's not able to play as a starter, he could be the backup, he could be an assistant coach type of player. And uh, I think that's good value because he has been in the league a long time and he is the reigning MVP for two successive years and could potentially make it three again. It would be a, as I said last week, something would have to really go sideways for Kolaris not to be MOP of this season. He's clearly, had it not been for the injury to Nathan Rourke, he's clearly ahead of everybody else. He's Look at his stats from 2022, 301 completions on 431 attempts. That's a, almost a 70% completion rate. He's at... 4,115 yards, 35 touchdowns. His, his overall efficiency rating is quite high. There are times when he looks pedestrian, and he did so against Edmonton. A couple times where he didn't complete a lot of balls, but yet he scored touchdowns with what he did complete and still had amazing numbers. He's that type of quarterback that can lull you to sleep and then all of a sudden and go down the field and have the ball in the end zone so fast. He has done very well in taking his team and doing what needs to be done to get that win and like you say his stats aren't always flashy but he's successful and when they need to make plays Caleros has the knowledge of the game and the ability to take his team down the field and do what needs to be done to pull out those games when it's close and generally the last few years any rate in the fourth quarter if Caleros has the ball he's going to try to put that game away and more often than not we see that happen. With the Bombers locking him up, that certainly does give them some security for the upcoming few seasons. The problem I think that they're going to face now is where do you find money to pay other players that are coming due on their contracts? That's a very valid point in the fact that Winnipeg players have often taken less to be able to stay together as a team. And now you've got your marquee quarterback commanding top dollar. I don't think you'll see other quarterbacks get that amount of money, even though there are many free agents this year. You're right, Don. To take $600,000 of your salary cap is a big hit for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. He had signed for this year for five fifty, so it's an increase of 50000 And interestingly, Kolaris, at the time that he signed the one-year deal, had said that long-term contracts were not necessarily in the best interests of players. Now he does actually go out and get a three-year deal. And likely because of the guaranteed side of the equation, he was probably 
much more at ease with signing long-term. With the Blue Bombers, they've got a lot of talent pool that they have to consider. Some people are still under contract. They're fine with that, but there are others that are becoming due. And as you mentioned, and as we see it every year in the CFL, more and more players are on shorter contracts, more and more quality players become FAs every season. That's true. And traditionally, we've seen Winnipeg put their money into the offensive-defensive line. And I guess we'll see whether or not that's something they can continue to do. We know, and we've talked at length over the podcast about some of the offensive linemen who may retire or certainly are getting on in age. I wonder if Winnipeg is able to go to the Grey Cup and win the Grey Cup for a third successive year. Are those players going to sign up for the fourth? Or are some of them going to say... That's a great career. I've had a great run, and it's time to maybe step away from the game. I'm more curious, what does Kyle Walters do if the Bombers come up short, if they don't win the Grey Cup in 2022? Then where does he go with that information? That could be a more of a telling story down the road if the Bombers, say, get wiped out in Regina in late November. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if, if they happen to not make it to the Grey Cup, even more so, it brings into question, how do we move forward from that point? It's a problem for every GM going into the next year, whether you're top or bottom, you've got to decide what direction you want to take. We move to Edmonton, Taylor Cornelius, who's been the de facto starting quarterback. He himself has signed a two-year extension with the Elks, was injured against the Toronto Argonauts. Now, this is an interesting story because at the time, Cornelius, who had been running down along the sideline, got hit by Enoch Moamba of the Toronto Argonauts. Nothing dirty about the hit, but it was hellacious. It was a hard, hard hit. Cornelius stays in for the next couple of plays. One of them, of course, was the Kevin Brown touchdown run that got the Elks into the lead. The Big question in my mind, and I could even see it at the time, was that he didn't look right. The concussion protocol did kick in. The booth said, you're not going back out when the Elks got the ball back. Trey Ford goes in for a couple of plays, but Cornelius is back out in the field on the consequent drive. He still didn't look right, and now we find out that he's got a bruised spleen. That is quite serious. That is something that no way could a spotter in the booth ever have countenanced. But it does explain why he didn't look right as the game went towards its conclusion, aside from the fact that I really wondered, was he suffering from concussion symptoms still? It was a crucial time in the game where we have seen the review booth take a look at a hit like that. And you're right, it was a hellacious hit. But in other instances, the quarterback has been pulled Instantly, as soon as we see a bit of a sign of struggle. In this instance, the booth seemed to miss it and allowed him to stay in for the next little while. When they finally did review, obviously, the trainers are trained on concussion protocol. They're going to take a close look and determine whether or not he is at risk at all. And they're not going to risk their quarterback who they've just signed for two years to do that. So obviously, he passed concussion protocol later. But I was shocked, like you, Don, to to see that the booth didn't pull him out immediately after that hit. It's a tough world for the booth at the best of times. 
trying to keep track of all the rule infractions. Where was that ball supposed to be located? There's a billion things going on. And then to have that layered on top of it, I do not, do not wish that on anyone. Having said that though, after the touchdown, granted he didn't have to do anything on that play, but once they got word, I, I was surprised, truthfully, that he was allowed to be back on the field. Now, perhaps he did pass all the tests. I can't speak to that. And maybe it was the internal problem with the spleen that was bothering him more because he took such a hard hit from Moamba and it was nothing dirty about it. He just, it was like hard football play. It just left me wondering, why wouldn't you pull him out anyway? Trey Ford is ready to go. This would be a great opportunity for him. It would be a great opportunity for Trey Ford, but at that point, I think you're going with the quarterback as long as he can pass that protocol and appears to be healthy, who's brought you to that point. It looked like Edmonton had a real shot at winning that game, potentially, and you want to keep your best quarterback in. And right now, although Trey Ford started the year as the starter, Taylor Cornelius has become the starter in Edmonton, and I think he gives him the best chance to win. It's, it's his team for the time being anyway, although when you try to make any sense of what the Elks coaching staff, especially Chris Jones, wants to do with his quarterbacking situation, it's like trying to re- read tea leaves blindfolded. It's almost impossible to know. So whether he's going to be the starting quarterback, did they sign him to a two-year extension to make him tradable? I don't know. With Chris Jones, you're right. You never know. It's towards the safety of a player. Moving across to the nation's capital, Bob Dice has now coached two games with the Ottawa Red Blacks. Won his first, lost his second, both against the Montreal Alouettes. He now gets to face the Tiger Cats for two successive weeks to finish the season. If Bob Dice and the Red Blacks go winless against the Tiger Cats at the end of the season, is that enough For Sean Burke to say, okay, we gave you the chance, you were interim head coach, sorry, but one out of four doesn't cut it? Or does he get the opportunity to look at this head coaching position in 2023 because you see a different pep in their step with the Ottawa Red Blacks? Against the Alouettes in the two games that he coached, there was more enthusiasm. The offense was more unleashed. Now it was a new offensive coordinator Will Arndt, who had to take over, and all credit in the world to him, never had done it before, and now thrust into that spot, and I think handled it very well. With with that in mind, does the shortlist include Bob Dice next year? I think the shortlist absolutely should include Bob Dice. When we saw them win the first game against Montreal, and you watched the video from the locker room of how excited the players were to have their win for their coach, you can tell that he's loved in Ottawa. Now, that doesn't necessarily make head coach material. He has had a couple opportunities to be the interim coach. He hasn't had that shot yet, but I do think he does deserve to come to the table, regardless of whether they win or not. It's clear that he's changed a bit of the tone of the Ottawa Red Blacks. He's pepped up the practices They talk about how he's made it more like a game situation where there's a bit of competition, and players love that. They want to compete. That's why they're professional athletes. So they've, I think, responded very well to Bob Dice. I think he deserves the opportunity to come in for an interview. That doesn't necessarily make him the the choice. I think the team has to take a look in this case at 
who are the candidates out there and who best fits where we want to go. It could be Bob Dice. You bring him to the table for an interview, but it may be someone else as well. The hard part for the Red Blacks organization and for Sean Burke, their GM, is that this team is coming off two very poor seasons. And how much patience does the fan base have to ride through some growing pains at the beginning of 2023? There's a, I'm certain, a strong belief system that the free agents that they brought in improved the team measurably and that the team is poised to do something with that talent. They do need the right person on top. The biggest thing that I think Bob Dice provides is all the players have mentioned he cares. It matters to him. They matter to him. They matter as individuals to him. And when you feel empowered like that, I think that does a lot for your confidence. And that's huge. With Paul Apolisi, he was sort of an X and O guys, kind of slower, methodical. And I don't know how well the players related to that. It's, it's going to be interesting. I, when Bob Dice was coach in Saskatchewan, he picked up from Corey Chamberlain. He really did okay down the stretch, but because Chris Jones was being talked to at the time, he didn't have a prayer at becoming the coach in Saskatchewan for the following season and essentially left for Ottawa as a result of it. And I've always wondered since that moment, would he get his opportunity? Well, will Ottawa finally be that chance where come training camp next year, that's his team? To be fair to Paul LaPolice, when you're the head coach, I don't think you're able to develop the relationships to the same level as a positional coach. So to say that Bob Dice cares about his players more than LaPolice, it may be that he has deeper relationships with those players. So those players understand him as a man. He understands them as men on the field. And that relationship leads to potentially a stronger bond than perhaps a head coach who has to oversee so many faucets of the team during the course of the game, the off season, and everything. While they'll still have a relationship, it's probably not going to be as deep. So I think Bob Dice has strong relationships. I think he has potential to be a head coach. I think he deserves a shot somewhere. I'm just not sure it's going to be in Ottawa because I think Sean Burke and Ottawa may want to bring in their own people. And rather than keeping on all some of the coaches, because I assume Bob Dice would at least keep on some of the coaches that he's currently working with that haven't had success, they might want to go in a brand new direction to find someone new to give the organization a total refresh. But to get that refresh, what do you have to give up? And that's my question. How far... In the hole, do you want to be at the beginning of 2023 before things start to gel? I, I kind of look at it this way, that Bob Dice... And let's go back to the game where Garrett Marino injures Jeremiah Mazzoli. Bob Dice is literally running across the field looking for Garrett Marino. He is so infuriated. And to me, he won a lot of a merit with his team because he was willing to stand up for them. And I don't, I don't think that it's necessarily Lapolis cared more or less. It's just that his style didn't go that direction. Uh, you look at Kahari Jones versus Danny Machocha in Montreal. Kahari was much more in with the players, 
much more excited, much more communicative. A player's coach. Yeah. And yeah, Machocha is much more X's and O's, methodical. He still gets along with the players, but it's a far different relationship. It, neither is bad. It's just different. And I feel that with Bob Dice, because partly because of his rapport with the team through his special teams coordinator position, and you could argue that's what helped Craig Dickinson in Saskatchewan at the start. But I think just Bob Dice as an individual is that much different that he could be that spark. Well, I guess we'll have to wait to the offseason to see if he is indeed that spark because I think he deserves the shot to come to the table. And if the organization believes he can be that man to take them the next step, because for a couple of years, we've been waiting for Ottawa to step up. We keep saying that we think they have the talent. We think they've got the desire. And yet... Yes, there was an injury to Mazzoli this year, which impacted the team's trajectory, but they have not made that step to be a team that's going to consistently be a playoff contender. Or it is often said that winning has to be learned, and the Red Blacks are still in the classroom trying to figure it out. Maybe with Bob Dice, they'll get it figured out. Second down. Four games on the agenda for the CFL in weekend action, starting in Ottawa, where the Red Blacks hosted the Montreal Alouettes. The Red Blacks having defeated the Alouettes in Montreal the week before, the Montreal Alouettes turn the tables and defeat Ottawa 34-30 in the first of what would be two fantastic games on Friday night. Good crowd on hand. Despite Ottawa's record, the attendance is still staying strong. Trevor Harris for the Alouettes, 19 of 27 for 241 and a touchdown. Nick Arbuckle, 28 of 36 for 271 and two touchdowns. Story of this game, as it will be in many of the remaining games of the weekend, turnovers, especially points off turnovers. If you take away... A fumble return for a touchdown helped get the Alouettes going, and that touchdown was the margin of victory, roughly. Alouettes with the win, of course, clinch second place at least in the Eastern Conference. That's a home date for them. For Ottawa, that puts them really behind the eight ball. Ottawa showed a lot of energy, as we discussed earlier with Bob Dice now as their head coach. Again, they were in the game, and if you point to Ottawa's record this year. How many times have they lost by seven or less in a football game? Again, they come close, but they are unable to succeed. And it's a last minute turnover that ends it once and for all for Ottawa when Arbuckle is stripped on a third down gamble. I thought Ottawa played a good game here. It was nice to see them come out and take chances. You mentioned before their new offensive coordinator, Will Arndt, when he steps out in the first play and he has Arbuckle toss it to Ryan Davis, who throws it downfield to make the connection for a 45-yard gain, you knew that they were going to take some risks and that it was going to be exciting. And for Ottawa to actually get a touchdown, I think that was the first touchdown since July, I think around the 21st at home. So how exciting for the fans not to just see one in the first quarter, but two, an exciting first half, lots of points put up, and these teams came to play you're right it it came right down to the wire and uh in the end montreal's defense stood up 
and made the stops when they needed to. Ottawa shows flashes of what they can be. They just aren't consistent enough to put it all together in one game. You look at the Alouettes on the other hand, their defense has been fairly consistent throughout. It's their offense that rides the roller coaster going up and down and up and down, and you just don't know from week to week, are they going to produce 20 points or 40 points? You've talked about that with Harris in a quarterback, and it seems to be that MO for him. Is he on or is he off? And when he's on, it can be a very exciting game. When he's off, that offense does struggle. Now, Montreal did get a huge cog in their offensive machinery back. William Stanback was back on the field for the first time since they played in Calgary early in the season. For the Red Blacks, Justin Hardy had a really good game, eight receptions, 93 yards. They kind of moved the ball around a lot more than we've seen. Nine receivers with receptions for the Red Blacks. That is starting to show that Arbuckle is making his reads, going through his progressions, as they say. And if you want to think of it this way, you typically have four opportunities in any pass play to throw the ball to someone. You have a primary, a secondary, tertiary, and then an outlet. And when you're going through your reads or progressions, that's essentially you're going from one through four to see where everybody is and can you find a person that's open. It's nice to see Nick Arbuckle have success in an offense, there's been a bit of a knock against Arbuckle in the past, and he has moved from team to team. So to see him start to settle in, Will Arndt obviously knows his quarterback. I thought they called a great game. Uh, to go 28 of 36, almost 78%, uh, that's pretty impressive. And more impressively, he didn't throw the ball away when he was making throwing attempts. He did get stripped a couple times, uh, but but at the same point, he was trying to make plays. And you, you've you got to give credit to the player who's trying to do what they can to win. Just Montreal's defense, as you mentioned, stepped it up again. Ironically, the week before, not one sack was registered by either club in Montreal. This time, six in total in this football game. The Alouettes with the win now get to face Toronto for the final two weeks, while the Red Blacks move on to face the Tiger Cats to wrap up their season. The late game on Saturday. What a game. The Hamilton Tiger Cats go into Calgary to take on the Stampeders. The Tiger Cats having not won in Calgary in 18 years. Decent crowd in Calgary despite the cold night. And Hamilton wins a wild one, 35-32 with a last-minute touchdown. Dane Evans really performed well under pressure in that fourth quarter. At the beginning of the year, Dane Evans appeared to have his confidence shot because he just didn't seem to be able to make the plays when it mattered. And this game seemed like Hamilton's head coach, potentially an offensive coordinator, put them in a spot where it was going to be very difficult to recover from. And yet Dane Evans and the offense didn't falter in this case. They actually moved the ball down the field in the time they had. Two long plays to uh, Tim White, who made outstanding catches both on the long bomb that he went up and took away from the other defensive backs and also in the end zone where he used body positioning to make that grab so that Hamilton could come out with a win. It was a great game. It stunned the faithful in Calgary. And Calgary, we were talking about dribble balls and everything like that last week. Well, here were the Stampeders. Not, it wasn't necessarily a dribbled ball, but they were using an old rule where everybody who's behind the kicker as he kicks it 
is onside. The only problem for the player that kicked the ball for Calgary was that he kicked it so far that the only players near it were Tiger Cats, and they just ran out the clock and ended the game right there. We saw that in the uh, 1989 Grey Cup. Hamilton tried to do that against Saskatchewan in the very final play as well because with five seconds left in the game, what else are you going to do? Smart coaching. Absolutely, and you've got to give it a try, and they did. I think where I had a question with the coaching decisions, yes, we can go through Orlando Steinhauer's decision to gamble on third and a little more than one with 148 to play, and they were at that time, I think, on their 21-yard line. A handoff deep in the backfield, you've got to question that. And yet, he stood up and said that he would make that call again. Is that the right call at that time in the game? He certainly showed faith in his offense, but it appeared like Calgary was going to have the opportunity to walk away with the win. But the various Dukes in Calgary's march to the end zone, he actually steps out of bounds rather than staying in bounds. It was 114 to play, and I think that was a crucial play for Calgary. If he stays in bounds, they run another 20 seconds off the clock. And where Tommy Stevens scored, there was 106 left to play, an extra 20 seconds off could have made the difference because Tim White's reception at the end of the game in the end zone came with 11 seconds left. Let's uncap all of this. This is You brought up a lot of great points. Let's start with the gamble. I agree with the gamble at the time. If you remember on the play, Wes Hill's ad-libs and goes the wrong way. All the blocking scheme was pushing to the Hamilton right, and that's where Hills went, and that's where all the congestion was. He was supposed to take the ball to the left. And then on top of it, he slips on the play. Yes. That is certainly something that he'll have to learn from. There are times when the design is the way to go. We do applaud running backs that see a hole, take the chance, and, and, and run for the opening. But in this case... He literally went the wrong way. The stepping out of bounds, not killing, allowing the Stampeders to kill the clock was a a mental mistake with the chance that they had at that time to not only control the clock, but also control the score. Yes, stay in bounds at all costs. Now, the final thing that I want to get to is, and something that hadn't happened to the Stampeders all season, Richard Leonard intercepts a pass, Jake Mayer is picked, and they go for a touchdown. That's the first time that a punt return, a block kick, a fumble return, or an interception has gone against the Stampeders for a score. That's an amazing stat. That sure is. That's fantastic. Let's look at Jake Mayer and all this. Three interceptions in the first half. If Jake Mayer was playing for Ottawa, playing for Toronto, playing for Saskatchewan, would he have started the third quarter in a game so pivotal? I I don't think he would. I questioned that at halftime I thought we may see a quarterbacking change because Jake Mayer didn't seem to be able to do much with the offense consistently and he was making a lot of mistakes which we haven't seen him do to this point in the games we've been able to watch him he's been generally successful but three interceptions most coaches would say it's time for someone new particularly when you have a quarterback of the pedigree and stature of Bo Levi Mitchell He's an outstanding quarterback, and yet Dickinson sticks with him through his struggles. I was quite flabbergasted, honestly, to see that. Jake Mayer goes 26 of 35, 251 yards, two touchdowns, and of course the aforementioned three interceptions. Dane Evans, 17 of 25 for 244 yards, one touchdown. 
Hamilton did it with defense. You wouldn't think of it with that type of scoreline, but the interceptions kept flipping the field, giving Hamilton short porches. The problem with Hamilton was that they were kicking short field goals a lot of the time, and that means you're not getting touchdowns when you're in the score zone. For the Tiger Cats, the win puts them, at least temporarily, into a playoff position. Let's move to Saturday. We've got two more games, and we go to Edmonton first. We're a Big crowd, 25,000 plus in Edmonton to watch the Argos gut the Elks with a 28-23 win. And I say gut because it looked like the Elks were on their way to snapping that home losing streak. And suddenly, in a very short order, Toronto's ahead in the last couple of minutes. Absolutely. Here's a game where the Argos come in, last having won in Commonwealth back in 2013, all signs look like Edmonton had the ability to take that game. Their running back had an outstanding night, and yet it's the same old story for Edmonton. They just couldn't make it happen when they needed to get a stop or make an offensive play. Cornelius out of the game. Trey Ford goes in. He throws a pass. It's deflected. The Argos intercept. This is just after Toronto had fumbled the kickoff. Toronto gets the ball back, and you could just see the momentum start to move their way. They march down the field. A.J. Ouellette goes down on a long running play where you're kind of expecting them to run down the clock and kick the field goal, and he bursts through for a 25-yard touchdown of his own. Absolutely. Ouellette was overshadowed on the night by Kevin Brown, as I mentioned, as a running back, and yet in that final drive, Toronto's offensive line gave him lots of room, and he ran with authority, not only on the play where he scored, but when they needed him to make the play, it seemed like they could almost run at will. So, at the end of the day, you had outstanding running backs on both sides, but Ouellette and the Argos pushed it forward and got the score when they needed to. A.J. Ouellette went for 91 yards on nine carries. Kevin Brown, fantastic day for the Elks, 19 carries for 121 yards. And it's tough because now it's 16 games that the Elks have lost consecutively at home. Half of those losses belong to... Chris Jones, although he seems to want to distance himself from any sort of acknowledgement of what's going on in that record book. Fair enough. If you don't want to be a part of it, that's fine, except your name's associated with it regardless. He's trying to focus on the here and now and, and moving forward. Moving forward, of course, they've got the BC Lions coming to town, and Taylor Cornelius will not be available. It does make you wonder if Edmonton is almost cursed, and it just seems like the team loses confidence as they come to the end. You talked before about finding ways to win. Edmonton isn't there with Chris Jones and hasn't been there for some time. The late game, Winnipeg in British Columbia, another big crowd. You can just tell that the momentum is building. BC, they were rocking and they were happy because at the end of the day, the Lions win a 40-32 over a Drew Brown-led Winnipeg Blue Bombers football team. Zach Kolaris was dressed, but was not going to participate in this game. And for the most part, Drew Brown did well, except for two interceptions, and both went back as pick sixes. This is a game where I thought Winnipeg, with a number of starters resting, played very well. A couple of interceptions definitely tilted the game in BC's favor. BC, I thought, would come in and potentially take this by a larger margin, but it shows that the Bombers are that team that fights, and when the chips are down, they seem to find a way to, at least most cases it's win, 
But even with the backup of Drew Brown in there, they found a way to get that game close. Closer than I thought it would be going into the game. Winnipeg was trailing 27-10 to 10 at halftime and made a game of it going down the stretch in the fourth quarter. Vernon Adams went all the way for BC, 13 of 22 for 138, one touchdown pass. Drew Brown, 28 of 39 for 325, three touchdown passes, but the big two interceptions. I guess you could say he had five touchdown passes. I'm sure Winnipeg fans wouldn't agree, but if you want to stat it that way, you're entitled. (laughs) It made a difference to who was going to win that football game, because we talked about earlier when Montreal got the score on defense, how that was enough to win the game. Well, this is the exact same thing where two scores by the defense, BC needed them to win. It, now, you could argue that Winnipeg had a depleted lineup going into that game. Yes, on offense, they did not start Calaris, but they had the receiving core in that was going to play. The offensive line had been changed a little bit, partly because of rest, partly because of injury. But the defense started all the principal people that were going to be relevant to the Blue Bombers. BC struggled against that defense, but their defense managed to make the most out of their opportunities. They did. The interceptions by Marcus Sales and by TJ Lee were, I thought, excellent, well-timed interceptions. The fact that they have the athletic ability to run it downfield and get the score definitely helped. In Winnipeg's offense, we didn't see the regular characters step up until late in the game. Dalton shown in the first half wasn't really a factor. And yet in the second half, Dalton Schoen started to turn it on. And the other one, which was really nice to see, was Rashid Bailey. He hasn't always been a big factor in games, but what a game this game for Rashid Bailey. He was, I think, the deciding factor that got Winnipeg back in this game and made it an exception. Shows the depth of the Blue Bombers going into the playoffs, but it also points out that you can't take anybody lately if you're the BC Lions, and maybe that's a lesson learned for them. TJ Lee, 102 yards. That play was so massive because the Bombers were coming down the field to try to catch the Lions, and suddenly, at his own eight, he steps in front of a pass and is gone. For the Lions, it's a huge win because it keeps them ahead of the Stampeders in the playoff race. It's a cold weather versus a domed game. Absolutely. Another factor that I thought hit this game was that Mark Legio struggled once again. He was one for four in the field goal department. Those three field goals that were missed could have made a difference in this game. They left it out there. So this is something that we saw Winnipeg struggle with last year. Legio's had a couple games where he's been cold. This one was cold again. As you come into the playoffs, you want to see him get a little more success so that they can feel in those close games that there's a strong possibility they're going to make it. In this game, Legio seemed to struggle again, and it certainly didn't help Winnipeg. With those nine points, it could have been the difference in the game. He missed from 52 and 53. Both of those were short. Yes. You don't get a lot of assistance from the air circulation in the building. So that is your leg versus that distance. True. The 45-yarder, yes, he did pull wide, and that cost them. The other thing that was so huge in this football game was the special teams play. In fact, a CFL record for the number of yards in the football game by both sides. One punt went back for a touchdown from the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Terry Williams went off with 
kick return, punt returns, always setting up BC with great field position. Yes, the kick returns, the missed field goals, however you want to describe it. He did extremely well, and that was massive for the overall play of the game because it kept, as I was getting to, the Lions in short fields to go on offense. It was one of the most exciting displays of special teams to see both teams not only we've often seen one returner go off but this time both Terry Williams and Janarian Grant made some outstanding plays and and really exploded through the holes every time that the ball was being kicked I was waiting for a big return and more often than not we saw it Terry Williams had five kickoff returns for 152 yards three missed field goal returns for 155 yards Janarian Grant had five punt returns for 172, four kickoff returns for 73. You add it all up at CFL record for most yards on special teams in a game. Third down. Before we get to the games that are coming up this weekend in the CFL, let's just step back for a second and look at the playoff races. We know in the West, Winnipeg, BC, Calgary have all qualified. The question is in the West, who gets second? BC will if they finish tied or ahead of Calgary in the standings. So BC essentially will clinch outright if they win one more game. Calgary needs BC to lose their final two games and the Stampeders must win their final two to get second place. It's very possible. In the East, Toronto and Montreal have both clinched home field. The question now is Hamilton and Ottawa. Who gets third? For Ottawa to get third, it's not impossible. <laughs> it's improbable, but not impossible. Ottawa has to sweep, and that's their only prayer. And they've got their foe right in front of them. For the Tiger Cats, their real concern is the Saskatchewan Rough Riders on the other side of the ledger. Right now, given that Saskatchewan and Hamilton are both tied with six wins, the crossover does not get employed and Hamilton finishes in the playoffs, Saskatchewan not. If Saskatchewan wants to finish in the playoffs, they have to win at least one of their final two games and have Hamilton not win any or win both and Hamilton split in their final two. If Saskatchewan wins any games, Ottawa's eliminated outright. If Hamilton wins any games, Ottawa's eliminated outright. Ottawa's odds are so slim. It's not impossible, but extremely improbable that the Red Blacks will be making any noise in the playoffs this year. The curious thing about this is that some of these decisions may be impacted by what happens on Friday night. So let's get to the games themselves. Ottawa and Hamilton kick off Friday night in Hamilton. The Tiger Cats are 5.5 favorites. Hamilton won their first meeting against Ottawa this year. Week 6, Ottawa and Hamilton. Hamilton won 25-23. Hamilton has to keep winning in, to stay ahead of the Rough Riders. Ottawa has to win both ends of this home-and-home home to even have a prayer at making it into the playoffs. Hamilton at home... They just came off a massive win in Calgary over the Stampeders. Ottawa disappointed by what they did in their game against Montreal. But as we titled the uh, last episode, it's a way field advantage. 
It's happened all through this season. Ottawa's on the road. What does that give you for a boost? This season, it seems like it gives a great boost. But having said that, Hamilton's just come off two big wins in back-to-back weeks to take out Saskatchewan in what was effectively a must-win game and then to go into Calgary and put them in the driver's seat. I think Hamilton is going to win this game, and I do think that they'll cover as well. Now, having said that, Ottawa should come out, and I think you'll see a great game. They might be closer than 5.5. I'm taking over, but they have nothing to lose. They've got to go for it. There'll be no stops pulled in this game. The thing that works in Ottawa's favor is that they don't have the pressure of the home crowd at all. And as you say, they can do whatever they want out there because they've got to win outright. There's no illusions about trying to conserve for next week. On the flip side, you've got to think that the Hamilton offense, especially, their confidence is sky high after what they did against the Calgary Stampeders. And that is a very stout defense that they posted that many points against. Granted, seven of them came from the help of Hamilton's defense, but the rest, 27, were theirs. If Hamilton can carry that forward. If Dane Evans can play loose, then the Ticats, with their running attack that they've discovered, should win this football game and cover. The second game is the British Columbia Lions in Edmonton. This is Edmonton's last chance to burst the uh, losing streak. BC a minus seven favorite. Taylor Cornelius will not be starting as quarterback for the Elks due to that injury that we discussed. Edmonton also being at home, and we've seen now at least three times this season where they've had a game, you think they're going to win, and something at the end takes it away. We can chronicle Toronto, we can chronicle Montreal, we can chronicle Winnipeg. It's three different instances where the Elks looked like they had something going and it just didn't work out at the end. The Lions need this game to stay ahead of the Stampeders. In fact, if the Lions win this game, they clinch home field advantage for the West semifinal. Who do you think is going to be more amped up? A team that wants to finally win at home or a team that wants to clinch second place? I'd like to say BC should be more amped up, yet Edmonton would love to break that record that they're setting right now. And uh, I, I... I don't see it necessarily happening. Having said that, BC has been underwhelming in the last two games. To be as close to Winnipeg as they were in the week prior to lose to Toronto, they haven't been playing their best ball. So this might give Edmonton a chance. Well, it's a seven-point spread, I think the game's going to be extremely close. I do think BC has a little bit more to play for in this game. I think having Trey Ford back running the offense might show a little bit of rust. So in this case, I'm going to take BC, but I think it'll be closer than seven. So I'm going to say they don't cover. Maybe I'm a bigger believer in fate, but it was against the BC Lions in 2019 that this streak started. It was against the BC Lions that the Elks last won a football game at home. It would be a great bookend for that story if the Elks could beat the BC Lions in Edmonton. Not sure who's going to be starting at quarterback for Edmonton. It could be Trey Ford. It could be Kyle Oxley. Edmonton is just so overdue that maybe a few bounces will go their way and not only will they win, but they will win going away. I'm I'm going to put my, my faint hope on the Elks. For the sake of our friends at the Turf District, as well as all those 
faithful Edmonton fans that have stayed behind their Elks, it would be fantastic to see them win. We move to Saturday. Part two of the equation in terms of playoff races and who's going to be where and what will be determined by the first game in Montreal. The Argonauts in town, minus 1.5 favorites on the road. The Argonauts, who a couple weeks ago in Calgary stunk the place out, this time go into Edmonton and win. This is the team that they have to beat. They only need one out of these two games to get first place. That away team advantage once again falls into play. But a second thing I think is really going to fall into play here is which quarterbacks will show up. Is it going to be the good Harris or the one who's been struggling? And can McLeod Bethel-Thompson get the offense rolling before the second half? He's been notoriously slow as a starter in the last few games. Montreal should be able to take this game being at home. The 1.5 spread is intriguing, but I think I'm going to take Montreal in the upset. I think they'll, they'll be able to take this game winning at home. I'm going to go against that trend of the uh, visiting teams winning. I'm leaning towards the Argonauts. McLeod Bethel-Thompson and Jake Mayer seem to have a very similar trajectory in games that they play. They both start very slowly. Once they get hot, then that's when the fireworks happen. I like Toronto on the road just because this is an opportunity to shut the door and end it here and not have to worry about the final game of the season. One other thing I'm going to be watching here is the running back battle. Ouellette, who we talked about, A.J. Ouellette, has really turned it on in these last few games. And on the other side, we have one of the premier running backs in the CFL who has a bit of an injury, has been limited in the number of carries, but Stanbeck should be moving up for playoffs. We know that they're likely to lean heavily on the running game when it gets cold. So for me, while we talked about quarterbacks, I'm also excited to see what's going to happen in the running game with these two teams. Will Fletcher play a big role? He had a fairly successful week last week. Is it going to be a combination of the two of them, or is Stanbeck going to get more opportunities in this game? The final game. Lot rides on this one, depending on what happens the night before in Edmonton. If BC wins, Calgary goes into Regina with nothing to play for. If BC loses, Stampeders have every opportunity to finish second in the West. Stampeders are 1.5 favorites going into Regina. I don't think that we're going to see... Even if BC wins the night before, the Stampeders start to rest everybody because everyone's going to be in town to play anyway because they've had to have made the trip to Regina. They may play more loosely because they know they've got nowhere to go. And the Rough Riders, who've got everything to play for and have lost a string of home games, five straight overall, may be more uptight. Saskatchewan in the recent weeks has shown that they haven't had the ability to step up in those crucial, meaningful games and eke out a win. Calgary just came off a tough loss. I think they're going to be extremely motivated, but you're right, a lot depends on what happens the night before. If Calgary is able to rest some of their starters, I think they're going to put them on the field for a portion of time and then rest them. If that's the case, I think Saskatchewan has an opportunity to pull this one out. If it's not the case, then I think Calgary will come off that tough loss, come out fighting, and I think Calgary should be able to take it. Without knowing what's happening the evening before, I'm going to say Calgary should be able to take this game just in the way that Saskatchewan's played lately. They haven't impressed me with their ability to show up in those meaningful games. So Calgary takes it, Calgary covers. Saskatchewan hasn't won a home game since July the 8th, and that was over the Ottawa Red Blacks. The last time they won a game 
was against the BC Lions in BC Place. This was just after Nathan Rourke was injured. And that was back at the end of August, on August 26th. Saskatchewan has not looked good. I just don't see how the Rough Riders can win this football game. I take the Stampeders. It's funny, not three weeks ago when we started to look at playoff scenarios, I had a page and a half of notes of all the permutations and combinations. We are now down to five lines. A lot to be decided this weekend. It's amazing how clear things can become with a win and a loss in a certain spot. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.